on today's episode of the Law of Tech podcast. It's going to happen. You know, the, the train has kind of left the station. It's going to happen by us as lawyers or non-lawyers are going to come in and do it. And so I would much prefer that it's controlled and done by people that are by, by us as the profession. And I think that probably goes back to that. Where's the line? You know, if, if we're the ones building the software, if we're the one building the tools, we can put that line in where we know it protects the client. If it's not done by us, then we don't know where that line's gonna be. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Law of Tech podcast. I'm your host, Halasa Drukash, and today I am joined uh, by Dom Woolrich, co-founder and CEO at LawPath. And we are here to discuss the intricate dynamic between, on the one hand, legal advice and, on the other hand, accessibility, highlighting in particular the question of where B2B legal tech companies should strike a balance. But before we delve deeper into the topic of this episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Betty Blocks. Are you looking for a way to create solutions that will make legal processes faster, easier, and more efficient? Do you want to offer the best client experience with great digital services? Well, look no further than our sponsor for this episode, Betty Blocks. Rapidly build custom legal tech applications such as legal intake portals, ESG assessments without a single line of code. Start building your own solutions today with Betty Blocks. Dom, I want to welcome you to the show. As I just mentioned, it's sad that we're not here as a complete team, uh, but also on behalf of Marco, I want to uh, welcome you to the show. And it's lovely to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. No, definitely. And you will have noticed that I didn't give a full introduction of you. There's a lot to say. Um, I also just read the uh, the piece uh, um, of the 40 under 40 uh, on the internet. And there's a lot to, to say about you. So I want to kind of give you the floor to introduce yourself, um, to explain where you started, where you're at now, and where the whole uh, story around legal tech comes into play. Great. Yeah. Love to do an introduction about myself. Yes, I just I was just named in the, the 40 under 40 legal leaders in Asia. I've got a couple more years before I'm not eligible for the for the special 40 under 40 award. <laughs> so I thought I better get in there before I get too old. Um, so as mentioned, Dom Woolridge, CEO and co-founder of LawPath. I'm based down under in Australia. Um, our, our business um, operates down here and, and in the US. A um, little bit of my background, just to add hopefully a bit of credibility to the talk that we're going to have today. Um, so I call myself a recovering lawyer. I started my career as a, as a solicitor uh, here in Australia, working for a large commercial firm um, and spent a number of years there and, and really loved the work I was doing. Um, I think um, whilst I was working as a solicitor and working with a lot of larger clients, I really started to realise there was a... Um, a huge unmet need at the smaller end of town, uh, which was in small business. And, and really what was happening a lot of the time was clients were coming to us uh, for help and just because of mainly cost, affordability, access issues, they just couldn't access the, the legal help that they needed. And I really felt that there was a, mm -hmm. a big opportunity there um, to, to cater for that market. Um, so... Um, since then, for the last seven years, I've been kind of really passionate about um, about working with smaller sized businesses and building software and building technology that allows them to access 
legal help. Um, I, mm-hmm. outside of my of my work as as, as running Law Path, I'm also um, very involved in um, universities. I'm a professor at the University of Technology in Australia, specialising in legal technology, because I really believe that the the future and the next wave of change in the legal industry is going to come from younger lawyers and and law students. And so I feel like um, working with them um, is a really good way to progress progress the profession. Uh, It's also a really good way for me to stay up to date with what's happening and and new ideas because... What's going on? Yeah. um, I'm a big... I think I'm a big believer in um, bringing IP from outside of the industry in. I think that's how change really happens. So... You know, for a long time, it's been lawyers or attorneys working on software or working on technology. Um, I really feel like the biggest steps have been made when it's when it's outsiders from outside of the profession that come in um, and say, look, this is how we do it in the software development space or this is where, how we do it in the accounting mm-hmm. space. Why don't we apply that software or that those processes within legal? Um, and so... Being involved in universities helps a lot with that. Thank you for the introduction. I also love how you uh, called yourself a recovering lawyer. I know there's also a move called the rehabilitated lawyer. Okay, yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that's also that's also a thing. We actually had the uh, like the kind of like founder of that movement uh, mm-hmm. also on the show, exactly talking about this topic. So <laughs> I love how you mentioned it. Also, it's the first time I've heard it since. And also really nice that you like what you mentioned that you have um, experience in both on the one hand the practical side like like, I mean, legal practice. So that's what you previously used to do. Then you have experience in the more entrepreneurial legal tech side. And then also in academia, you mentioned bringing in different people from different disciplines to better understand what's going on in the the field and what we can learn. Um, We love talking about legal education on the show. And I know that has nothing to do with the discussion on accessibility and legal advice, but I'm curious to know how you bring in um, those perspectives or the perspectives that you've gained uh, from your time in legal practice then now your experience um, leading Law Path and also kind of like bringing those different perspectives into the like into the, the university classrooms, you could say. How do you bring that all together uh, or what lessons learned will you give others? Yeah, I think, um, I think when I first started working with the universities, um, I was a big believer in bringing practical skills from the profession back into um, the study of law. I felt... You know, when I went through university, um, they were slightly disconnected. You know, the theory of law and the practice of law um, were were quite separate. And I really at first believed that, that they needed to be a little bit closer together. Now, um, I've actually changed my tune a little bit. Um, and one thing that I've, um, I really believe is that um, there's, a, there's a bit of a movement in Australia and kind of globally to, to start... Uh, you know, legal technology is a, a big, um, it's very popular right now. And a lot of universities are actually starting to offer majors and courses just based on legal technology. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's fantastic and it's great for our area of the, of the industry and it, it moves everything forward. But I think it's also really important that people don't forget that the kind of core legal concepts and core training as, as an attorney or a solicitor is also very important and can't be forgotten. So I think that these courses, and this is something that we work on a lot at the University of Technology, is make sure that you have the underlying theory of, of legal, and then you can build out of building blocks technology on top of that. But um, 
going too far and and kind of taking emphasis off the core core legal concepts and just working on technology doesn't doesn't work. Um, to you know, yeah. another point there that I think is is really important is that um, you know we're a team of of, of 100 people at, at, at LawPath. Um, I do a lot of hiring. Um, I hire a lot of lawyers, but I also hire a lot of software developers and product managers. Yeah. And and one of the things I'm always um, thinking about when I'm doing those hirings is um, if I'm hiring a lawyer um, at, at my technology business, I want to hire a really great lawyer. I don't want to hire a lawyer and a software developer because then they're not going to be great at mm-hmm. one or the other. So, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of um, – there's a lot of um, – there's – a bit of a movement that goes around that says if, if you can code and be a lawyer, that's the perfect combination. Yeah. But I actually don't believe that. I think mm-hmm. that if you if you want to be a solicitor, you should be a solicitor. If you want to be a, a software developer, you should be a software developer. I think there's probably a few unicorns out there that are great at both, but I've never found one um, <laughs> who is an, an excellent coder and also an excellent lawyer. Um, so you know, back to it, back to studying and, and, and university, I think it's really important that if you are entering the legal profession that you do just say, look, I will, I will learn that skill set first and then maybe add on the additional technology skill set. So yeah. what I did is I, I did a, a law degree to start, went and was a solicitor and then, um, or an attorney, as you call them, as, as the Americans call them, um, and then I actually <laughs> went back to study and I studied product management. Um, where I built up my mm-hmm. technical skill set, so that when I started LawPath, I was able to um, obviously had the the, back, the domain background in in legal, but then was also able to decipher what the the software developers were saying to me. I still don't understand everything they're yeah. doing, but at least I kind of understand the general <laughs> the general gist. Yeah, I guess it all comes down to communication at the end. Like uh, you just said, you don't have to be both and you don't have to be the best at both. But if you're able to communicate like what you managed to do by, by doing both, yeah, um, that's what, what matters at the end of the day, as long as you speak the same language. Um, that also brings me to, to the topic that we actually do want to discuss also in, in this episode, the question of accessibility and legal advice, because obviously you need both of or like various uh, uh, um experiences and and, uh, diverse knowledge uh, to create both on the one hand from the technical perspective to ensure that things are accessible to those that you're addressing and on the other hand uh, the legal advice which requires the legal knowledge. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about Law Path, Um, the what, the why and the how kind of behind how it came to be uh, and your focus on the smaller businesses also because I think that's very interesting. Of course. So I think um, to set the scene, you know, legal is a, a huge industry, trillion dollars a year annually in revenue across all, all legal. Um, but a, a, a stat early in my career really hit me, which was about 80% of small businesses claim that they can't access legal help. So we've got this huge industry and, it, and it's really big, but it's only servicing about 20% of businesses globally. And so there's this big what I call under-advised cohort of businesses, typically small businesses that either can't access or can't afford legal services. And when you look into that, um, it really comes down to the model. You know, the the model of, of, of lawyers is to charge you typically time-based um, and typically the services are expensive. Um, and there's reasons for that because it's a highly skilled profession and we need to charge those kind of services. But really, 
why LawPath came about was that we started to look into other professions around the world, specifically the accounting profession, and we saw that there was a lot of change coming through there. And over the last 20 years, you've had companies like Intuit and Xero and QuickBooks um, come through and totally change the landscape of, of accounting. And really one of the big things that they did was they introduced technology, specifically self-serve technology, where they put tools on platforms where clients could access them directly and self-serve and complete simple tasks themselves. And so the, the perfect example mm. of that is, is bookkeeping. Now, if you're a, a business and you're a small business, you'll have one of these software platforms where you plug in your bank accounts and it does all your bookkeeping for you. Um, mm. And really what that did to the accounting industry is, is it totally changed the way people interacted with the industry and it really opened up accessibility because now it costs you $50 a month to have access to an accounting a subscription and you could do all of your books yourself and then you go and see your accounting at the end of the year. So taking that and looking at the success of those platforms, we really felt we could apply those um, methods to the legal industry and solve this big issue, which was most people couldn't afford a lawyer. Um, so in 2014, mm -hmm. we started LawPath and we actually started as a marketplace where we would connect lawyers and clients together and very quickly, clients kept coming to us and saying, look, it's great that you're connecting me to a lawyer, but if you were to give me the tools, I could actually do a few of these tasks myself. So since then, we've built out, um, we've, essentially the process is we look at a certain task that, that has to happen. Let's say it's um, creating an employment agreement or collecting a debt where you might go to a, a lawyer traditionally, and we've then used software to replicate that so you can do it yourself. Um, and we have now ha have about 400,000 small businesses on our platform using us to run all of their legal and compliance needs. Um, to give you a kind of a little bit of a sense of, of how it works, we, we typically start um, working with a client when, they, when they're just forming their business. So we start about 10% of all businesses in Australia through our platform. So when we first started the business, um, my goal was to replace lawyers. And I know lawyers don't want to hear that. And um, But the great news yes. for everyone listening to this podcast today is that that's not <laughs> going to happen. And I think a really, really fantastic <laughs> learning along the way has been that um, software can't replace a lawyer completely. Software can change a lot about what lawyers do and how they work. But ultimately, law is a human trust-based profession and there's no substitute for having somebody on the, end, on the other side of the desk or at the other, other end of the phone being able to explain, um, you know, a legal issue or a legal solution for you. So really where we've landed as a business, and this is as we started to launch into America, this is our model moving forward, is software can do part, some tasks really well. And I think it's, it's good that we say, okay, software, you're, you're good at this area. The, the highly commoditized tasks, let's do that. And then let's let mm -hmm. lawyers and attorneys do the more complex thing. Um, and the concept um, that's been going around for a couple of years now is this idea of unbundling legal services. So not, um, if you think about the process of a legal task or a legal process, not every step needs to be done by mm -hmm. a practicing lawyer or a practicing attorney. You can break it up. 
And the industry's been doing this for a long time, right? Like we all know in firms, paralegals do most of the work. It's the lawyers that kind of jump in and sign off. Um, And so this idea that um, you can have non-legally trained people completing some of the tasks, you can have software completing some of the tasks. It's probably um, hard for us to have a podcast in 2023 without talking about AI. So AI can do some of the tasks as well. Um, and then you inject yeah. the solicitor or the attorney in at the, the critical point, typically when um, mm-hmm. the legislation or the law tells us that we need to have an intern, an attorney involved. Our aim is to talk about the topic of, on the one hand, that accessibility, mm-hmm. uh, which is made easier by technology. On the other hand, uh, like the personalized, tailored advice in cases where either it's necessary or uh, by law, for instance, or prescribed by law. Or for other reasons, because you're just stuck in legal compl- legally complicated situation, uh, and you need to talk to a lawyer because you don't know what to do uh, as a business owner. So, where does that part that what you used to offer uh, as your primary service first, where does that come in now? Because I can imagine that despite all these uh, standardized workflows that uh, or templates that small business owners can use, um, there are moments where they are wondering what to do and they need to talk to a human and understand. So, how does that? How do you offer that and how does that stay accessible so in terms of the costs and well yep. the, those types of, of factors that come in yeah that's um yeah let's let's talk about that so i think generally there's a macro trend now consumers and and clients are more willing to try and do things themselves they they're used to mm-hmm. doing their banking their insurance their accounting themselves and now they're calling out and saying we w- at least want to be given the chance to do some of the legal tasks ourselves. Um, You know, a lot of the pushback we got in the early days was the profession, it kind of holds on to everything and says, oh, you can't do that. It has to be done by a lawyer. And I think that actually had a negative Mm -hmm. impact because lawyers got a bit of a bad reputation for maybe charging for things that maybe didn't need to happen or, or charging for things that potentially was quite a simple task. But you're exactly right. It can't be just... free-for-all because there are certain protections that need to be given to specifically small businesses and a lot of the time they don't understand the risk um, in doing something a certain way and this is why we all go to university and become practicing lawyers is because we're taught this is the risk and this is what needs to happen so the way that we've dealt with it at law path and the way that i kind of see self-serve platforms like ours moving forward is um, firstly, you need to have both op- options. You know, I really believe that if, if it's just a software platform and no ability to connect with a professional, um, that you'll run yeah. into run into problems. So what we've done is we've really taken a look at all of our processes and applied a risk profile to each one. And then it's about informing our clients the level of risk they're taking in any certain workflow that they're going through almost to a point Mm -hmm. where in some of our workflows we'll actually say you can't move forward without having this checked by an attorney or without working with an attorney so um Mm -hmm. you know i'm sure i'm not saying any secrets here there are some very basic kind of contract drafting tasks done by small businesses every day which I have no problem if we've given them the right tools, them doing that themselves. Let's just use a non-disclosure agreement. They're completed all the time by small businesses 
And mm -hmm. typically, if they're given the right template and the yeah. right tools and a little bit of information, they can do that themselves. Um, you go to the other end, if yeah. they're reviewing uh, or signing a lease for a new property, um, that's a risk and there's a lot of liability that comes with that and that's where you wouldn't want to do it yourself. You, you need someone. So the trick then becomes how do you make the process of swapping from a self-serve to an assisted um, yeah. flow really simple and seamless? And so the ways that we've tried to um, solve that at LawPath have been via technology and then also via our kind of billing practices. So the technology side is we've, you know, our platform, you actually invite your lawyer into our platform as a team member so they can see everything that you can see and they can co-draft documents with you. They can check that applications are correct. You know, you can click a button and they will pop up on a video and they'll be able to see what you can see. So you can work really seamlessly with them quickly. Um, to be honest, I think actually the biggest um learning we had was more around the billing system so and when i say billing system i mean kind of more like the way that we price so one of the huge barriers for small mm -hmm. businesses in engaging with lawyers is that um usually there's a bit of a fear of how much it's going to cost and and they don't really understand the process what it's going to cost there's a bit of a uh, i know in australia especially uh, most of the law firms charge in six minute increments and they're saying and they think Oh, if I call mm -hmm. this law firm, they're going to charge me from the moment I pick up the phone. And, and that, that creates a bit of a barrier. And so we've yeah. really made sure that we've moved to a fixed price billing model. And then now we're, we're actually uh, 60 to 70% of our billing structure is actually subscription-based so that you know you have mm -hmm. certainty around costs so that you know if you need to email your lawyer or you need to call your lawyer that there's no additional charge. It's already included and it's, it's very transparent. And what we saw was this incredible change, which was once we moved from time-based billing to subscription-based billing, uh, consultations and connections between clients and lawyers increased by six times. So um, clients were really willing to then, it took that barrier away of, of mm -hmm. you know, not, not wanting to speak to them. And, and we know that the more engagement, the more help and and typically actually that means the more work because you're, you're engaging more and more with your lawyer. So it actually yeah. increased billing um, for all the, uh, the lawyers as well. So, yeah, I think there's um, just to circle back um, to your, your, your original question, which is where do we draw the line? How do we draw the line? I think that if you're speaking from a, a purely kind of client centric view, you would actually say um, let, let the client decide where the line is. But I think mm -hmm. the lawyers need to get involved because we are the ones that actually under, typically understand it and sometimes we need to draw the line um, and say, look, the risk profile here is low. This, this is open for you to do it yourself. The risk profile here is high. This is when we need to get involved. Um, and the, the trick is just educating the clients around where that risk profile, where that line is. Um, I mm -hmm. think now what we're finding is that with um, with AI, so so we have LawPath AI on our on our platform that can draft documents, review documents, and answer questions. And it's very hard to draw a line there because the AI doesn't draw a line. It's actually programmed to never even see the line, you know. So um, what we've had mm -hmm. to do there is um, we were originally using um, 
GTP 3.5, which is the open AI model. Um, and we found that that mm. was a really good model. However, um, it wasn't very good at following instructions. Um, and the way to make sure that the line um, is never crossed is to have a very strict set of prompts and guardrails. And so we've recently swapped over to a, a different model called Anthropic, Claude 2, uh, which is specifically built. One of the use cases is specifically built for legal purposes. And we found there that you can actually code in these lines that we're talking about where you can say if the client starts talking about this type of topic or if the client uploads this type of document and asks you to review it, actually you need to say, no, this is a high-risk document. The risk profile is too high. Let's connect you with yeah. a human. What is your view on using AI uh, to provide legal advice? Because we're talking about humans that can do that. I could imagine that uh, to some extent uh, the generative AI models that we're seeing right now and that will definitely be coming as we go on and, and there are models that are trained more on legal data and will be, become more acquainted with uh, with some of the topics and, and the, the ways of, of arguing within in the legal uh, field. What, what are your thoughts on using such models to further replace the human um, advisory role, you could say, and then only for very specific cases have humans uh, on board and then fill the gap through AI. I mean, that's all, it's, yeah. it, I'm not trying to make any assumptions <laughs> on no. what your thoughts may be. You did say you wanted to replace lawyers, but it's a big topic, right? It is. And, and maybe you can <laughs> guess my answer. I'm a huge advocate for it. Um, so, you know, really where um, I actually felt a limitation of our platform was that law has always been this one-to-one -one type model where you've got a, a client with a certain set of, of circumstances and then the advice needs to be tailored from one lawyer to that client. Um, you know, my mm -hmm. kind of vision has always been how do we do one-to-many so how do you kind of advise multiple clients at the same time almost? And to be honest, AI has just opened that up and now you can provide almost infinite yeah. advice. So, um, you know, we have 15,000 clients on our AI beta at the moment. So our AI is actually providing legal. I have to be careful here because there are laws and regulations all over <laughs> the world. Um, it's providing legal information rather than legal advice. Um, to our clients yeah. at the moment. Um, about 20% of our clients are choosing to use the AI assistant over a human. Um, and mm -hmm. I found that really interesting um, because my initial kind of hypothesis was if you can access a human lawyer, why wouldn't you access a human lawyer? Um, but what we're mm -hmm. seeing is actually that they would actually prefer to start their questions and their queries with the AI, oh. and then once uh, their kind of initial queries are solved, that's when they're moving to a lawyer. So it's almost acting as a triage system where they can kind of gather information and answer basic questions and then move over. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm... Do you have basic information about why, why that is the case? Like why are they more interested in talking to a, or having an interaction with an AI uh, system rather than with a human i'd be very curious to so we we started doing yeah. yeah we started doing some surveys because it was actually difficult to tell from the data why they were doing it um we needed more subjective mm -hmm. feedback but one of the initial observations has been um it's very easy to sit at your computer um and drag and drop a document 
into the platform and then the platform suddenly says, here are the five clauses that aren't market and here are the five clauses that I suggest you change. Um, Mm-hmm. And it takes, you know, that takes, what, less than a couple of minutes. Whereas for me to do that with a human lawyer, I'll email them the document, they'll review it, they'll set up a phone call for them to give me a call or they'll read it or they'll mark up the document. So I do think ease of use um, is is playing into mm-hmm. that. I also feel like there is a, a bit of a a bit of a barrier connecting with a new person, whereas people are very happy just to mm-hmm. log on and, and at least start the process with software um what we've done in terms of training our model is we've taken the data from all of our clients existing clients we've uploaded legislation we've um you know put in probably two to two hundred and fifty thousand legal documents so the system is trained specifically on australian law at the moment and so the accuracy is really high and i think people are getting are very happy with the results they're getting so far so, look, moving forward, what I do think that a lot of um, legal work will be augmented using AI. Um, what One of the projects we're running at the moment, which I'm very interested in, is um, our, our, the lawyers that work through our platform, before they actually speak to a client, the AI will actually look at their query that they've, they've asked about and it will actually give them a, a suggested answer of what they should say to the client. So mm-hmm. instead of the lawyer needing to go and do some research or um, spend half an hour kind of background getting context, the AI can actually quickly um, give it to them. So I think there's multiple use cases. There's use cases where you provide the technology directly to what I call consumers, non-lawyers, the end user, or you yeah. you provide the technology to, to the lawyers, which is the the most popular use case for AI at the moment, and then the lawyer uses that to provide the the advice or the service in a faster or more cost-effective way to the end client. Um, it, it's probably mm-hmm. yet to be seen which which one wins in terms of what becomes more popular. Yeah. Um, I know we're heading towards the, the wrap-up, and I know that we're slightly constrained in time, so I want to ask you uh, another question, a final question to, to wrap up the episode also. Um, and that is, if you could give, um, well, looking at the industry, we've spoken about uh, this shift from uh, purely tailor-based uh, or tailored uh, advice towards using technology to standardize certain processes, still having a lawyer on the side that can advise towards now with new developments going, uh, coming about uh, with AI, for instance, and this is only the beginning. Uh, we're slowly seeing a shift uh, further towards the human being really at the end of this entire uh, um, service, starting with basic technology and structures and then having more advanced technologies do more of the work. Um, how would you pitch, if you uh, had the opportunity to now, uh, how would you pitch this type of model, thinking about all the technological developments that are going now and potentially in the future, um, to the legal industry and as far as you know, this model hasn't already been uh, implemented? Yeah, I think that as a legal industry. Yeah, uh, I th- I think that um, a lot of it comes down to um, there's there's been a, a little bit of a shift in power, you could almost say, over the last twenty years from um, the lawyer, uh, the profession saying this is how it's done, to clients now having different expectations and clients actually saying, um, no, you know, I I expect for um, the you know the process to be different, or I expect for you to do to use software or technology in your practice. So 
they, clients now are so used to um, using online tools, um, working with professionals and non-professionals to get tasks done in other professions. I think they expect that from us lawyers as well now. And I think we would be silly as lawyers not to embrace um, software and unbundling of our services because really there is um, there is an, there are certain tasks or, or parts of a workflow where a lawyer can really add a lot of value, and we know there are certain parts where you don't need a lawyer in that in that part, and that's where we should be substituting in non-lawyers, alternative legal pro- providers, or you know, my, my, my view is, is software to, to do the work because at the end of the day, it's going to make, it's going to mean that us as lawyers are doing the things we really want to do, which is not, you know, document generation or, you know, it's the advisory work, which I think most of us yeah. as lawyers went, went to law school for. Um, but also it's going to mean that the, typically the work can be done cheaper because it will be value-based rather than time-based. And I think that what I've seen from the, you know, now millions of clients that have come through our website that, that that they really appreciate that. It actually drives a better relationship and further work. So, um, mm. you know, we can look at other industries and we can say um, that, have, that have already been, you know, in quotation marks, dis- disrupted. And we can say it worked really well for some and it worked not so well for others. And I think where we saw it work mm-hmm. really well was in the accounting space. There's such a parallel between legal and accounting. And we saw that technology was able to be used to really make that whole entire industry better and 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 bigger. And so I, I hope my goal my my hope is for the next five years that that legal continues to be as responsive and receptive to software as possible. And I think we're going in the right direction. Um, and mm-hmm. it, I would say maybe as my last comment that uh, you know it will make our profession better the more that we can. The, we can use these tools that are that are coming and this fear that AI is going to steal our jobs or this fear that software is going to take away from the profession I think is totally unfounded it's only going to make it better thank you and I think it brings us kind of like or it takes us full circle again because it at the end of the day it all comes down then to being able to communicate either with those that are developing the software as legal practitioners or with alternative legal service uh, or legal professionals or other uh, other professionals so it kind of brings us back to education i guess <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. um, and understanding where we are needed yeah <laughs> and and, and the, the, the other thing is it's it's going to happen you know the, the train has kind of left the station it's going to happen by us as lawyers or non-lawyers are going to yeah. come in and do it and so i would much prefer that it's controlled and done by people that are by by us as the profession and i think that probably goes back to that where's the line you know if if we're the ones building the software yeah. If we're the one building the tools, we can put that line in where we know it protects the client. If it's not done yeah. by us, then we don't know where that line's going to be. Very, very true. I think that's a great way to end the episode. It's like a, kind of like a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? What's going to happen next? <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Dom, for, for joining me on this chat. Uh, I really appreciate your thoughts and, and uh, sharing your insights from your own experience at LawPath, but also from uh, your experience at Academia and, and previous experience as well. Um, so I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been really good to talk about about this, I think it's such an important conversation to be having at the moment because there are so many companies um, coming up and, and 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 testing different things and and um, unbundling, and we need to make sure that it's done correctly. So yeah, thanks for having me. Um, 
um, I've really, really enjoyed my time. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Law of Tech podcast. If you want to make sure you keep up to date with the show and never miss out on an episode, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and follow the Law of Tech on social media. If you enjoyed the show, please give it a rating or review as it helps others discover the show. And don't forget to share it with your network. For now, have a great day and I'll see you in the next episode of the Law of Tech podcast. Yeah.